You go public and 30 million people hear what you gotta say. Nothing, I mean nothing, will ever be the same again. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Failed Block... No, Failed Award Contenders Retrospective. We're winding down. We're doing Failed Blockbusters uh, soon. We'll, we'll get to it. Uh, just quick note before introductions and shit. Matt and I were talking before. Um, some life changes are occurring. Nothing too drastic from the, the sounds of it. You're, you're good, Matt? Everything's great. Okay, that's my co-host, Mike Ringo. It's magical um, and beautiful, and I'm happy to be we're alive. We're going to take a... Well, we won't be taking a break, but you will be receiving a short break so we can kind of uh, pile out some episodes for you, and then we will return with the, I believe, the failed blockbusters. Yeah, failed blockbusters will be what's next. Okay, yeah. We're going we're gonna to yeah. skip uh, Happy Amblin for now. Apologies to Dan Doherty. <laughs> yes, but we Happy Amblin will return. Yes. And then... Uh, after this final episode of the Failed Award Contenders, uh, where we're talking about Michael Mann's The Insider, holy shit, finally. Finally. Um, we'll be catching up on some other blockbusters that we did miss, like Scream 5, No Way Home, Eternals, and most recently, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, yes. a.k.a. Sam Raimi's Return to the Big Screen. Sam Raimi's back, baby. Uh, yeah, so there's like three Marvel movies in there. Uh, so you're welcome to all the what? shills. Was there something else we were supposed to do? If there was, we'll, we'll, we'll come I'm back to I'm trying to it. remember it, but I feel like there was like one other movie we were supposed to do, and now I can't think of it. So uh, I, I wrote them down when we were going over okay, it, so I, I, I think it was just those four. Scream, Spider-Man. Um, <laughs> Eternals. Eternals. I guess that's it. I guess that's it, really. Like... We're kind of tacking we had... on Multiverse of Madness because it's just how time... Like, had, had things gone as planned, we would not have tacked Multiverse of Madness on. But it's where no. we're at right now, so... Yeah. Um, uh, Michael Mann's 1999 film, The Insider. It's a Michael Mann movie. It's a masterpiece. Thank you for yeah. showing up, everyone. Well, unfortunately, Goodbye. no one's really talked about Michael Mann ever. So we're kind of out yeah. in the wilderness on this one. I know, I know. Kind of, I had to do a lot of research. Yeah, actually. what can we really focus in on, to that like to, to make people understand how this guy Michael Mann can make a movie real well? I love hearing him talk because he's got that really thick Chicago accent. Yeah, and he'll be like, "Yeah, you know, I was doing some undercover work with some uh, some of the force guys around Chicago and or, or, or private agencies and." We're starting to get into really, you know, the surveillance state. And it's just like, what the, f where is he, where is all of this coming he sounds, from? He honestly sounds like he owns a pizza parlor. <laughs> <laughs> hey, welcome to, to Michael Mann's Pizza Parlor. That's a deep parlor. dish pizza. Um, <laughs> he's Pizza Papa. He's, oh my God. <laughs> Don't even get me started. Um, we're, we're saving this. But I'm just it. saying, like, he does kind of not sound like his movie. And it, it honestly makes more sense in a weird way because, like, so many of his later movies feel like, like, a dad who, like, read an MSNBC article or something. <laughs> and he'd be like, Do you hear what happened with this boat? And it's, it's bringing soy futures over? Like. <laughs> <laughs> It's... See, that's the problem with fucking Black Hat. Maybe that's a future failed blockbuster. Um, that's the fucking problem with Black Hat, is that uh, at least the media junket around it, because no one fucking talked to Michael Mann like they were talking to fucking Michael Mann. Mm -hmm. They, 
that was like the huge shift in 2015, I think, at least the, yeah. the mid 2010s. There's a huge shift towards like journalism and fandom. Mm. And by fandom, I mean like people, like journalists kind of became like an uh, an arm yeah. of the media marketing yeah. campaigns for a lot of these productions, unfortunately. And Black Cat is not suitable for that. So, well, I had the I had this weird feeling of like. I thought, like, maybe if Black Hat had come out, like, even a year or two later, it would have done a little better. Like, because it was weird that a Michael Mann film was, like, unceremoniously just dumped in January, you know? With no hype, even from other film fans. Like, did you see Black Hat in theaters? I didn't. I didn't either. Like, it's, it's, and it feels like we all kind of should have. And I was like, maybe just years later, but then Tokyo Vice is out right now. And yeah. no one and everyone saw the pilot. Yeah, no one is talking about it. Uh, well, film Twitter. No, no, film <laughs> Twitter isn't even talking about it. But no, I, I've seen some people. It's trailed off. I have seen a out. handful of people mention Tokyo Vice. I have not seen anyone go in on Tokyo Vice that didn't have to write a column about it. You know, like there's nothing yeah. organic. Like with let's say um, the Northman, a movie that bombed essentially. <laughs> Uh, but everyone was talking about it, for better or worse. It seemed to be all over my timeline. <laughs> but I'm, I was kind of like, I just thought when the insider, when I mean Tokyo Vice came out, there would kind of be like at least some interest, some casual interest, and there just isn't. Um, but or at least like an excuse for people to go, hey, remember how fucking good the insider yeah, was? Yeah, maybe it's because film Twitter is always at that level. Of, like, every three days someone's like, hey, did you guys know that the movie Collateral is actually good? Like, and it's like, yes, we did, but it's okay to talk about it again. (laughs) Yes. And, I like, also remembering that film Twitter is like a bubble. I know sometimes people are like, everyone just talks about Michael Mann here. They don't talk about him anywhere else, so sorry, Mm -hmm. but fuck off. Mm -hmm. You don't have to fuck off. Just, like, understand why. It is that way. And it is because no one else is talking about him. Speaking of talking about stuff, mm-hmm. this is my segue into the synopsis. Although I... The Insider is a 1999 American drama film directed by Michael Mann from a screenplay adapted by Eric Roth and Michael Mann from Marie Brenner's 1996 Vanity Fair article, The Man Who Knew Too Much. That is all important to the episode we are discussing. Now, I want to go yes. back and talk about Robert Eggers for a minute. <laughs> okay, okay, yes, go because ahead, you, and then we'll get back You were talking that. about film, the film Twitter bubble, um, mm-hmm. and the kind of weird... Uh, Robert Eggers seems to be, in the conversations I have seen, seems to be breaking through the film Twitter bubble against all odds. Really? Yeah, that people are talking about him, and it's one of those things, too, where the way people are talking about him is the way that people talk about Christopher Nolan and it's a little frustrating <laughs> oh okay I was gonna say that's actually kind of exciting to me at least it, to, I'm sure you're gonna inform me of the well no you know that thing where people are like no one does it like Christopher Nolan and I'm like oh, no yeah. a lot of people do it like Christopher Nolan like there's a lot of great filmmakers out there <laughs> like, yeah. and people are like I was seeing people be like I just saw the Northman and Robert Eggers clearly went all in on historic accuracy. And it's like, here's the objective ways this movie's brilliant. And I'm like, as someone who's like, I love the Northman, that's that's not what I responded strongly to <laughs> in the Northman. 
And I'm like, I mean, the North Bend failed blockbuster. Yeah, eventually. Sorry. Eventually, um, it it is at fifty million right now. Um, okay, which it, but I mean, it, it's not going to turn. A it would have been one of those. I feel like in another year, like post, I mean, pre-pandemic, it would have been one of those movies that like bombed here, but did like huge in Europe. You know? Like, yeah. I just it's, but it's not really doing that. Um, but I was just, it's one of those things where people are like, you could tell it's, it's the weird, like, we have to turn a director into like an objective genius, you know, that Mm -hmm. film Twitter doesn't really do, but occasionally does. There's a little bit of that for Michael Mann, but Michael Mann still feels, feels like he's only worshiped in film Twitter. Um, but like, there's a worship of people like Christopher Nolan and people like, um, Quentin Tarantino that, no, hang on. There's a worship of Michael Mann by film Twitter mm. and Guillermo del Toro. And Guillermo del Toro. And <laughs> uh, dads over the age of 55 across America. Yeah. <laughs> and those are the three groups that... Uh, but it's it kind of feels like Guillermo del Toro loves everything, though. Know what comes out that's really popular and he ends up not talking about. This isn't like any specific... I'm not even calling on any specific film. Mm. Just notice when stuff comes out that even like a, the general public is raving for mm. if he's silent on it i think it's for a reason i listened to an interview with him on the king cast for example just because i love like he's one of those guys i love hearing him talk mm-hmm. right doesn't matter when or where and i actually like the king cast what is the king cast? but um it's a stephen king podcast oh, okay yeah yeah, yeah. Um, i um, listened to another king podcast called just king things <laughs> i like that title that's good and... um but he oh, gail Toro was talking about like or he was asked uh what Stephen King novel would he like to adapt, or like what would ins- what inspires him the <laughs> did most? Did he like? say it? <laughs> no, uh, and I think he didn't because he produced Andy Muschietti's first feature, Mama. Yeah, and so they're buddies. So he, I don't think he would talk ill of him. Although I don't he, believe he likes it. Just as, as a personal belief, there's no evidence of that. He was supposed to have a cameo in it too. And he saw the movie and he was like, you know what, Andy? <laughs> no. Um, uh, but he did mention that, like, I would really like to do Pet Cemetery. Like, oh, yeah, I would that still just like had to do a, that. Yeah, and that just that, had a remake. Yeah. yeah, and he was like, I think there's a, a, a really good version of that out there. And that's all he said. And I was like, yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Del Toro is one of those guys kind of where it's like his silence speaks volumes. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, remember when Pacific Rim 2 came out and that opening weekend he was just talking about like other shit he really liked. Yeah. Here's something weird. It, um, This has nothing to do with what we're discussing. Yeah, we're going to go back to the insider, I swear to God. But um, is Guillermo Del Toro and Robert Zemeckis feuding? Uh... Oh, you know what? It I never even considered that. Because uh, yeah, Del yeah, Toro it, Del Toro has a writing credit on The Witches that came out. And Del Toro was supposed to do it. And, uh, you know, whatever happens, Hollywood, it didn't happen. Robert Zemeckis ends up doing it. It's really bad, right? Robert Zemeckis' next film is Pinocchio. Guillermo Del Toro's next film... <laughs> Is Pinocchio <laughs> two separate Pinocchios mm-hmm. at the same time? What's that about, man? <laughs> I never considered that, but I, maybe, maybe it's a possibility. Exclusive? 
I mean, it's just, it's very odd that, like, they're both doing those projects. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And maybe they tried to work together at some point and then had a weird falling out. And, uh, yeah, it's it's odd. It's just an odd coincidence of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Also, Del Toro, like, again, also didn't uh, tweet at all when The Witches was coming out, a movie he ostensibly wrote. (laughs) He's one of three writers attached to it. Didn't he? Uh, and was didn't a, that come out like 2020? Right? Yeah, it came out 2020. It was one of those. It was like one of the first wave of things that just went straight to HBO Max. Okay. Well, in yeah. his defense for not tweeting during that one, he was probably like knee deep in Nightmare Alley. Like he didn't tweet for like a good portion of that because that I, was like a big project. I get it, but The Witches was one of those things that like before he was ever attached to it, he was like, "I would love to do an adaptation of The Witches." Mm. Like it was one of his projects that he was like, "That's kind of a dream project for me." Now, Guillermo del Toro seems to have 50 dream projects. Yeah. <laughs> but it was just it's a little odd. Mm-hmm. Um So we hey, know he you... doesn't like The Witches or Pacific Rim 2. Yes. Hey, did you hear about the falling out between Adam McKay and Will Ferrell? I did. I just learned. I just learned this like literally last night, and it was like shocking. <laughs> yeah, I know it's sad because it is kind of sad. Was even like, yeah, I fucked up. <laughs> yeah, like, Adam McKay. I. It, it's weird. Ad, it sounds like Adam McKay like definitely was like kind of did like the dick move in that whole thing. Mm-hmm. But there is something weird with Will Ferrell right now, where Will like you know we have Adam McKay who's like swinging like to the left of Bernie Sanders these days. And then you have Will Ferrell out there, and he's doing, like, Daddy's Home 2 with, like, Mark Wahlberg and Mel Gibson. And it's produced by Gary Sanchez, their old production company. And Adam McKay is, like, a pinch hitter, like, writer on that thing, like, uncredited. And then there was the whole weird thing of, like, funnierdie.com, the website they both started. Like, Adam McKay walked away when they, like, did something with, like, ExxonMobil and shit. Yeah, and it's like, what's going on there? Like, it was that thing I never could reconcile where I'm like, I don't understand how Adam McKay is like this really left-leaning guy and then his best friend in the whole world, Will Ferrell, is out there doing a Mel Gibson movie, you know, mm-hmm. under their production label. Like, it was something I could never reconcile. And then when this falling out happens, it's like, there might be something there. Like, something uh, something that we, we didn't we don't totally know about i'm not saying will ferrell's a bad guy just like there might be some tension there is what i'm saying yeah i don't know know he he's he's a i don't know how left wing or anything like that but he he votes democrat he has a history of voting democrat he voted democrat and he was also he made a big deal about being one of the first guys who like parodied the president on snl Mm -hmm. to be like i am not going to the white house correspondence dinner like he made a statement like during the Bush era where it's like, I think what Bush is doing is bad for this country and I'm not really in the mood to buddy around and joke with him, you know, Mm -hmm. like, which is kind of like, that's actually a kind of big thing to do at like peak Bush, you know, like, but yeah, there's, it's odd. Also, it's so odd that the, that he got passed over. The thing is that like he lobbied hard for the lead role in the winning time miniseries, a role that went to John C. Riley, and they're also like best friends, you Mm -hmm. know, like it's so strange. That's one. Like I don't get too into Hollywood gossip, but that's one where I'm like, that's kind of wild. You know, I can actually bring this background to the insider. No, yeah, I was about to say. You know what I need? I need an insider for that friendship. <laughs> <laughs> no, mine was better than that. Cause it's I need an insider from Gary Sanchez, the production company. I need someone who was there on the ground to talk about this. 
with me personally <laughs> for well, no one's benefit <laughs> i was gonna say i think there's some heat between eric roth and michael mann shocker that someone mm. doesn't get along with michael mann uh because uh back in the 2019 round table i believe 2018 uh-huh. at the thr after star is born because eric roth wrote the, the new version of star is born yes um he was mentioning, I, I forget what the question was, but he was talking about how he had worked with a, like his history working with very prolific directors. And he had mentioned that there was a director that he made good work with, but didn't really get along with. And they tried to make another, they tried to put another project uh, on the ground at some point. Uh, and it only got about halfway completed and then it died and they haven't really worked together since. And he's not interested in working with him anymore. To the best of my recollection, that's the chain of events. Uh-huh. Looking into uh, Michael Mann and Eric Roth work together on the Insider and a little bit after, and and, Ali. Uh, they did Ali together. They did Ali, and then uh, in the the interview Michael Mann does with that fucking uh, uh, Charlie Rose dipshit, the last <laughs> question Charlie Rose asks him is, "What's next for you?" And he says, "I'm working on on a western with Eric Roth." Oh, I think okay. that might be the next one, but it'll take us like a year to get it off the ground. And then, you know, that ends up being Ali. And then mm-hmm. the plan was to do the Western, I believe. And then it, that, that faded away. So I, I'm willing to bet Eric Roth doesn't like Michael Mann very much. And that's <laughs> fine. That's not a judgment on either of the characters. It sounds mm-hmm. like I love Michael Mann. Um, I well, totally you're... get people not wanting to work with him. Here's something interesting, though, with what you're saying. Like, I'm like, oh, that's, that's interesting. I'm looking at uh, who Eric Roth has worked with. I'm looking at, like, a list right now. Mm-hmm. And unless I'm missing something, do you know who is the only director he has worked with more than once? Don't don't tell me. Hang on. Michael um, Mann. Whoa! Yeah. it's. I'm looking at it. I'm like, I'm trying to... Like, you know, it's a list. I'm trying to see if there's, like, other names. But it's like, he worked with Spielberg once. Worked with De Niro once, Fincher once, Cooper once, Villeneuve once, and it looks like he's not doing. Is he doing the Dune sequel? He's doing the Dune sequel. Okay, so there's that, but that's basically one. Like mm. when you break it down. Yeah, like, he, he had a treatment. He he talked about that uh, recently after after doing uh, Dune. He was like, "Yeah, we 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 got a treatment mm. going." Mm-hmm. Okay, and then it's like, and he's working with Scorsese once for Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah. So it's it's Zemeckis once, Costner once, Redford once. Like oh, you know what? Then hey, maybe maybe what, what the real lesson here is that Hollywood gossip gets you nowhere. <laughs> but also, Michael Mann is a guy who like he'll have like a good working relationship with someone and then like immediately burn that bridge. Like <laughs> to go back to Black Hat, um, mm. the the soundtrack is credited. Yes, to, I was about to bring that up. Yeah, to, to, I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> uh, Reznor and Ross, I believe both of them, right? Yeah, yeah. And then uh, one of them made a very public tweet where he was like, "Yeah, it's not really our music." Uh, I kind of he kind of took over and just kind of reworked some other stuff he had interested in, and so it's just, it's not really our stuff. And I was like, "Oh, I thought the soundtrack is the score then, was pretty good." <laughs> but then didn't Michael Mann like say something like, "Oh, I don't know. I don't remember the quote exactly." So like, I I probably, but he said something like. If they want to be musicians, they should stick to music. Like, he said something wild like that. <laughs> it was like, whoa, okay. Jesus like, Christ, dude. Um, but, yeah, I'm looking at... 
But also, Michael Mann, I was trying to think. So, yeah, he was supposed to do a Western with him, so that didn't happen. Michael Mann, I was like, for a second I thought Eric Roth might have something to do with Michael Mann's unproduced um, Gates of Fire, which is the unproduced Battle of Thermopylae movie that he almost did. I fucking never knew that. What the you fuck? D- you didn't know about that? Yeah. No. I don't, I don't know if Eric Roth is writing it. I was just thinking about it. But there there was a Michael Mann, basically Michael Mann's 300, like, that he God was going to do. God fucking damn it. Some, and allegedly it's one of those ones that, like, he kind of still wants to do. But I think after 300 studios were like, we're not going to touch this for a while. But, you know, four more years, 300 will be, like, 20 years old. So Yeah. Uh, well, uh, he's got Ferrari next up. It's official. Yeah, Ferrari. which is kind of wild that that is the next one he's going to do. Let's go. But um, again, we've been at the fucking Ferrari, you know, line like a dozen times at this point. I will not believe that movie exists until I'm sitting down in a theater. Yeah, like, that's fair. I feel like, and even then, I feel like there's a chance I buy my ticket, sit down, and the movie starts, and Michael Mann just comes on camera. It's like, yeah, we had creative differences at the last minute. I shot the movie, but eh, it's not coming out now. And then he walks away. I was like, all right. <laughs> well, filming is due to commence mid July. Yeah, again, like, hold, I'm holding my, I'm not holding my fucking breath. Like, yeah, yeah. It's like true. there's a good chance, like, we get to July, and he's like, eh, fuck him. <laughs> something or other happens that that's true that's true um, oh my god eric roth wrote extremely loud and incredibly close i know i know what a weird and varied uh filmography i think we talked about him before too because he also wrote forrest gump and then mm. you had a good take on that film where it's like it's it's meant to be a satire mm. directed like incorrectly almost by robert zemeckis well, I, here's the thing. I don't know if it was Zemeckis's fault, though, because the reason I brought, I thought, looked at it as a satire is because of Zemeckis. Zemeckis's like whole career before that is like totally satirical, you know. Like, it's after that he gets really sincere, mm-hmm. and it's weird. Where I'm like, I don't know if the switch flipped in his head or if he tried to make if Forrest Gump was like him trying to do like it's a satire, but I'm also going to be genuine, and then he just decided to go more genuine afterwards. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's it's all all of that is strange. He wrote Airport seventy nine. What <laughs> <laughs> the Concord? <laughs> we should do the airport movies. Sure, fuck it. Um, <laughs> Talk about movies know... that have like aged like like worse than milk. Like none <laughs> of those movies have any standing today, and they were like the blockbusters of their era. Yeah. How many airport movies are there? I have no fucking idea. Four. Oh, what? <laughs> there is four airport movies. Jesus Christ. Just as many as Jaws. <laughs> so, Airport was nominated for Best Picture, <laughs> which makes it a failed awards contender. What about Airplane? Um, hey... You know, that's the thing. It's that's the, where Airport was like a huge franchise, and they and everyone basically says Airplane just killed uh, the Airport series. <laughs> like after that, no one could take it. Seriously Speaking anymore. of projects that were killed, yes. Uh, do you know Michael Mann almost worked with John Logan, or he did work with John Logan, and their film never got off the ground either. Oh, what was what was that? It was going to be a, a Hollywood film noir that would have starred Leonardo DiCaprio and would have taken mm-hmm. place in the nineteen thirties. Investigated some. Fictional and real-life crimes, to the best of my understanding. I actually have this script. I haven't read it yet. 
That sounds interesting. Yeah. Um, There's another guy. There's another guy with like a wild career in terms. John of, like, Logan screenplays. is an incredibly talented writer. He is, but he also is attached to a lot of movies that don't showcase that talent. You don't like Star oh. Trek and Nemesis? There's that. I'm not even gonna throw your 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 Alien Covenant under the bus. It's like he's got like fucking uh the time machine like that's a weird movie like the last samurai mm-hmm. um some of these are movies i just don't care like sweeney todd like i can't even really say that's a bad script i'm just like i'm kind of one of those like i'm just too much of a purist so like any deviations from the musical i'm like fuck you like oh and uh, uh to be clear there there is no title for the man logan project the, the title page simply reads man slash logan project <laughs> Mm. So oh, it looks like John Logan is going to be directing his next film. Ooh, um, he's making the leap like Aaron Sorkin before him. <laughs> oh no! Well, John Logan at least seems like creatively he's got he's got his finger on the pulse. But there is you can see I guess you can see it in his filmography where it's like he writes Gladiator and then immediately signs on to like a million projects because mm-hmm. it's like because his next films right after Gladiator are The Time Machine, Star Trek Nemesis. Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas, which is an animated film, the movie that killed 2D animation, um, but was also Jeffrey Katzenberg trying to be like, look, we could do animated Gladiator. (laughs) And the box office was like, no, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) And then Last Samurai, which is clearly trying to be like, Gladiator, but with Samurai, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And then it's like, uh, and then he goes and does the Aviator and then disappears for three years. <laughs> yeah, Sweeney Todd. Oh, then he fucking writes Rango. The Aviator, which Michael Mann has an executive producer credit on. Mm-hmm. Because Michael Mann almost directed it. You want to know another connection between the Aviator and Michael Mann? And mm-hmm. the Insider? Hmm. Both produced by Disney. Oh yes, I was gonna. I was thinking of a time when we would bring that up. Yep, uh, we, we'll talk about like plot logistics and historical something bullshit, that but... would just like talk about something that would never happen today. Yeah, so this um, is where I get to also yell at people, and they're like, "No, see, like Disney owning all these different brands gives them a, uh, a, another avenue to making different types of films," and it's like, "No, it doesn't." Um, I know smart people are arguing this anymore, thankfully, mm-hmm. but that definitely was a big thing that was being touted around, and I'm pretty sure that was a psyop of some kind, because, uh, like, that's just well, not true. It was the way to justify buying 20th Century Fox. Yeah, like, and it's like, well, now we're going to shutter all Searchlight Productions. Anything yeah. that was there kind of gets to finish off, and now stuff is done. I mean, here's the thing, like, the incredibly cynical look at that is that, like, they literally bought 20th Century Fox just to fill a hole they had for when they were jumping to streaming, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they needed that prestige, because it's like, okay, you, you have a lot of Disney stuff, but you don't have any prestige films. Whereas, like, HBO Max kind of has the opposite problem, where, like, they're mostly prestige stuff, but not... They're not, like, an IP mill like Disney. At least not yet. Yeah. Um, And it's like, did they just buy 20th Century Fox just for all those movies? Like... I guess uh, Hollywood is that cynical, but also you can tell there is like some awards envy with Disney. Like, uh, like why else would they do the audience award thing? Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, why would you buy 20th century? Why would you want all these things if you're not going to, and it's not like searchlight would ever produce anything that would compete with Disney, you know, mm-hmm. 
Like, but that's that weird Disney thing of like every dollar that goes to someone else is a dollar they could have gotten. Yeah, well, you, you know? gotta remember too. I mean, I think there's a lot of um, respect people have for someone like Bob Iger because he's supposed to be like some legendary producer, marketer, CEO, whatever you want to jerk off to under the reins of capitalism. He was a, he but, was a genius who came to Hollywood and said, what if I just bought things Yeah, that, that was my <laughs> ultimate point. Thank you. Yeah. He, 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 I he, mean, he, why Why do people think Elon Musk is a genius? Yeah. Like, it's, it, all he did was buy things. I'm going like, to link the Stavros clip in the description. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he just, that, he didn't make the cars. Yeah. He, everything he has, he's bought, basically. Like... He's not this genius, and Bob Iger is the same thing. Yeah. And, I, like, if you're going to give Bob Iger any credit, he yes, he saw where the puck was going, like, a little faster than other studios, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he... It's that thing of, like, Paramount could have totally locked down that relationship with Marvel. And, like, right before Avengers, they're like, ah, this shit's probably got, like, three more movies left in it. <laughs> and then, like, you know, Bob Iger buys them before Avengers comes out and looks like a genius. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, like, all he did was, like, like all he was doing was expanding the Disney brand. And, like, yeah, but again, it's, like, not a sustainable business model. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. Um, And, I mean, I think it's telling that all their their actual original, like, family films are being dumped on Disney Plus and receiving either lukewarm reviews or being eviscerated like the new home alone which i'm not watching i'm not i'm not not throwing any negativity towards i'm just saying like the reviews were fucking brutal for that one yeah and that seems to be occurring a lot but all the the ip stuff that people have generally enjoyed that's still being released people those are getting a little softballed in my opinion Mm. even for stuff i generally have also enjoyed and that's all i'm saying I, i i think there is it's not brainwashing but i do think it's like training audiences to receive certain things and it's it's just the end result of buying all the stuff people ended up liking at one point or another (laughs) okay um um yeah i don't know about it's just although remember when disney plus launched and there was like a bunch of like day one family films that like no one had ever heard of yeah oh no that was the funniest fuck that was one of the funniest fucking days on twitter ever yeah and it was like where did these come from? And there was like the Bill Hader one. Do you remember that? It was like a oh, Bill Hader yeah. Christmas movie. And it was, and people were like, where, where did this come from? And they was like, Disney shot these movies like three years ago <laughs> and then didn't know how to release them because they've just forgotten how to release anything original. Like, they only know how to release IP movies now. Speaking of failures... At least uh, the inter- Nutcracker in the Four Realms. Oh, Joe Johnson's last film. What a what a guy everyone likes. Oh, anyway, it's just so <laughs> it's so tragic. I had a soft spot for his his career, and mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's a bummer. But um, Joe Johnston, I gotta say, looks angry in his Wikipedia picture. <laughs> yeah, he's apparently a little difficult. And it's him at like a Comic Con panel. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, shout out to Captain America: The First Avenger, the best one still. Um, um, no, the Insider. <laughs> oh, okay, I was talking about the the Captain America movies, but okay. Yeah, the Insider. Uh, the Insider was know. also failed. To I market. don't know anymore. Okay, well, who cares? Uh, the Insider was also failed to uh, be marketed properly, and it made sixty point three million dollars against a sixty eight to ninety million dollar budget. It also had like a pretty spirited uh, publicity campaign leveled against it by Mike Wallace. <laughs> Yes. 
uh, hated and, the movie. And this is also uh, why I brought up Charlie Rose earlier. And I brought up this interview before, but it, I don't think people understand, like, the gravity of the interview. It comes out after the Insider's released. Charlie Rose immediately opens the interview with, like, I need to declare my loyalty to CNN. <laughs> I need to make it clear that uh, this is a film. This is you. You took liberties. I, I. I don't think he said the word liberties, but he's basically saying like, it. The film is different from reality. And then Michael Mann will go on to reiterate like, well, you know, if you look at the interviews, like we, the video interviews that took place in reality that we drew upon from, uh-huh. it's pretty. It's pretty accurate. Now, to my understanding. It is about, like, 70% accurate, and Michael Mann would acknowledge this as well. It's not 100% accurate. Stuff like the bullet being left in um, Russell Crowe's mailbox is not a thing that happened. Uh, I thought that did happen. Did it? I could be wrong. I'll go with you. Let's say it didn't happen. I'm that is pretty a wild. sure that one didn't happen. That is a wild thing. I didn't that... double-check that, but I remember that came up a lot. I uh, So it really would have been, like, a fifth check, but, you know, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that's not that's not real. Um Stuff like CNN and CBS, uh, not CNN, CBS, excuse me, uh, being dicks about the interview going live on 60 Minutes is apparently very accurate. Mm. To the point where uh, the Al Pacino character's um, uh, Lowell Bergman mm. leaving the studio because he, he was, uh, he, he thought the integrity of the institution was, was too damaged is yeah. a real thing that occurred. Like, that's not fiction. You can't make yeah. that up, you know? And uh, I, I don't believe he ever went to work back for them because he was like, fuck this. Like, it is kind of wild that this is, you know, it's based on a Vanity Fair article from like 96. Like, and this is a movie from 99. And it is this like, it feels like very like forward thinking movie of like kind of what we're witnessing right now with like the death of journalism. You know, mm-hmm. like it is a movie about like with all these corporate interests, like kind of tripping each other up behind the scenes in you know the news world it is kind of like the end of this like any sort of integrity a news channel could have it's a it's a movie about how institutions are cancerous basically mm-hmm. it's not just the smoking industry but that's the big part of it you know yeah well it's that's what's so cool that's why this movie kind of rules is just like it's a movie about like okay we're going to expose the tobacco industry right mm-hmm. which it's kind of wild that like the tobacco industry was able to hold on for so long saying cigarettes weren't addictive like, um, what was it? What are they? The seven dwarfs of the tobacco industry? They call them, I believe. <laughs> I think so. In this yeah. Movie. Uh, and uh, they, how they like, they're all kind of this united front that like will not admit these things. And this, this, it's a big deal when someone finally goes on the record saying, "Yes, cigarettes are addictive," which is something that is just common knowledge now, and it was also something that like you feel like everyone knew it, you know, but there was just no legal grounds to deal with it. And then halfway through the movie, it's like, it's like a movie, like the first half where you're like, yes, journalism. Yes, the power of a good reporter. It's like the fucking, all the president's men, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, that's the first half of this movie. And then the second half of this movie is like, 60 Minutes becomes the bad guy. (laughs) And that's wild. Um, That's what I really like about it. And it's also one of those movies that like, I love this movie and it also leaves me feeling like deeply depressed at the end of the movie. <laughs> I think this is this weird ramp up to, um, like I consider Miami Vice, Public Enemy, Public Enemies and Black Hat to be like this weird trilogy of like technological apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Okay. And I feel like all this, but Insider feels like an odd like prequel to it of just like the beginnings of like corporate capitalism like is just going to erode all faith and in institutions. Would you say it's his Attack of the Clones or Revenge of the Sith? Listen now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I I stopped myself <laughs> from saying that this was the Hobbit to that trilogy. <laughs> Because I was like, that would be a fucking dumb thing to say. Man. Don't say it. And then you throw that shit at me. No, it was better than the Hobbit one. Because then it would have been bad. Listen, no, that was bad. <laughs> you fucker. Um, listen. Uh, also, it's weird that this is also a movie that, like, the opening of this movie is kind of... Uh, like about Al Qaeda, <laughs> like, no, it's, it's kind of, uh, Hezbollah. It's Hezbollah, but like it's the weird like this is the type of news stories that were happening all the time where reporters would like literally like get like you know fucking uh, bags put on their head and brought and like interview like Osama bin Laden in a cave somewhere. You mm-hmm. know, like that's what's happening at the time the story is set and at the time the movie's released. Like, those are two very common things happening. And also, the fucking Unabomber <laughs> is, like, the subplot of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's wild. <laughs> he uh, leverages the Unabomber story to get what he wants. <laughs> like, that's crazy. Uh, I wanted to also mention that I, I, I've been... A little cynical myself about like the state of journalism not inherently journalists but like kind of what gets more access you know what i mean more yeah. what gets more attention who is able to kind of frontline these stories as, as investigative reporters or whatever and oftentimes it's not really hard-hitting journalism it's it's very softball journalism and i think we're all kind of starting to understand that uh, before his passing, I listened to an interview with Peter Bogdanovich about how, because he started as, as a as a journalist as well, mm-hmm. and he was talking about how like there was a you, you would spend like a month with your subject, you know, either living with them or like spending every day with them to cover and do a profile on them. So you really got the sense of who they were, and they couldn't really hide anything from you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I saw an episode of Barry that just aired, and the character Sally is premiering her new show so she has to do a lot of press junkets and she's like getting ready to divulge her spirit she's like what if i say the wrong thing because this is like a very personal show to her what if i if i don't say the right thing what if i don't convey like what the show is really about and then she starts getting asked the questions and it's just a fucking joke because we've all seen the the sound bites and the the talking heads of what gets asked now it's like who do you think the next spider-man is going to be you know Mm -hmm. it's not real journalism it's yeah it's publicity mm-hmm. and i i i just bring all this up because this episode's probably going to be really cynical and probably end on a really cynical note because this is an incredibly cynical movie mm-hmm. but i i do think the tide will turn eventually because we're all just aware of how this fucking bullshit works now well you there's know? so many things right now where like i have to say the tide will turn not because I do believe it. I'll say that. I, I don't want to get too cynical. I do believe the tide will turn on a lot of the horrible shit happening right now. But I'm also saying it because it has to. Mm-hmm. Or, <laughs> or, or a, we all just die. Whatever. Yeah. No, no, it has to. <laughs> like, it really has to. Um, and it's 
news is definitely one of those things where we're at this weird breaking point with news. And it's so weird when you get people who are like, I like, I have conservative relatives who will go on in about like how terrible CNN is or something like that, right? Mm. And I'm like, what power do you think CNN has? Like, that power of journalism just doesn't exist anymore. Like, the like 60 Minutes, remember, is like the most watched... When this movie is set, and when it, I believe when the movie still came out, 60 Minutes was the most watched TV show. Like, it's the number one show on television. Which just isn't the case now. Now it's fucking like Young Sheldon or some shit. Yeah. And, and like, news just doesn't have that reach anymore. And... I feel like we also live in this era of, like, who who was the guy who tweeted, like, I've been working on this story for months, and he just tweets it out. Like, when one of Donald Trump's sons just blatantly admitted to a crime on Twitter. Oh, yeah, yeah, God, what a fucking... Mm. My, my brain's never gonna recover. But it's, but it's also, like, that's just showing, like, that, like, journalism means nothing right now. Like, that guy could have broken that story. And nothing would have happened. Because what has happened mm-hmm. since Donald Trump Jr. tweeted out? And why was he comfortable enough to just tweet it out? Because he knows he'll experience no consequences. Because there are no consequences for the rich anymore. Like, that's where we're at as a world. Like, mm-hmm. it's... And because, of course, also the rich all own all this shit. They all own 60 Minutes. Like, they own the news. <laughs> so they can allow... Like, it's all what's ever in their best interests. And they're not, I'm not, it's it's a more fucked up thing is like they're not putting out straight propaganda. Of course, some are. Like, I don't want to, like, there's definitely a weird, like, uniformity of opinion. But it's more like they're diluting the product so much that it it doesn't matter what's on the news anymore. Like, some guy could, it's that weird thing of, like, how there's so many UFO stories right now. And it's like, it feels like that should be a bigger story, and it just isn't, because it doesn't matter. And this is a weirdly, like, I don't know what the word would be. There's a word, and I can't think of it, but it's it feels oddly ahead of its time in that sort of thinking. And I... I don't know if maybe people... Because there's a lot of takes about the news of just like, ah, the news, they distort things, they blah, 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 yellow journalism and all that stuff. And it's like, that's, yes, all that is bad, but that is not the the focal problem of journalism these days, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and But it's still like boring takes like that. And that's this is a movie not about that, really, you know? There is that angle. I mean, we, we when Jeffrey Wigand's uh, character is like, starts getting attacked from all angles, you know, when there's a straight-up straight up hit pieces being put out against him. But, mm-hmm. again, it's like where news turns into this weird, like, corporate arm. It's, yeah, this movie's a lot, especially yeah. now. No, I mean, that's that's what really hit me on, on this rewatch. It's just, like, it's such a movie of, of the now, of the time, mm-hmm. that I, I, it almost feels wrong to say, like, it, it saw it coming or something like that. Like, maybe it just... I mean, because it's also based on true story, yeah. that it, it's, I don't know, it, it, it's almost like eternal, unfortunately. Yeah, I think it's this weird thing. Michael Mann has this weird finger on the pulse that just, he's kind of ahead of his time, because I think, because there's all, you know, we, we talked about, like, film Twitter kind of, like, 
is loves going in on Michael Mann, loves talking about him obsessively and stuff like that. And you can talk about like you know the technical side of his filmmaking, but I, a guy doesn't resonate with that many people just from the technical side of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think he, there is something especially in his later work that really tapped into a lot of what's going on right now that maybe people didn't take didn't uh, that took for granted at the time that now it's like oddly precedent or something like that you know mm-hmm. um, and it's weird it's weird to see Michael Gan Michael Mann get boiled down to like oh his movies are just copaganda or something like that you know yeah and then you watch a movie like Collateral which is very much a movie about how the police will not protect you <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> and it feels oddly um, fitting. I don't know, um, but this one and it, it's—I don't know. It doesn't get talked about as much, I think, because it's like it's seen as like his kind of adult movie. It's this, although this and Ali kind of are like the two less talked about Michael Mann movies, and I think those are both really terrific movies. I really like Ali. I seem to be the biggest fan of Ali when I talk to other people. Um, we I mean, almost I, did Ali. We yeah, almost we did. did Ali. I, I also love been, Ali. It's, it would have uh, been weird, <laughs> um, considering what happened while we were recording the failed awards contender. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Um, uh, no, but it, I think you have a point too. And like when when I tried initially doing like a a smaller snippet version of a Michael Mann retrospective way back in the day. Um, I, I kind of had like the, these bullet point questions to ask the guests I would bring on. It would be like a favorite Michael Mann shootout and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then like, I stopped doing that and I started reconsidering like my entire approach to Michael Mann. Cause I was like, you know, it's not just that, that makes mm-hmm. a Michael Mann movie. You know, I had, I had other stuff too, but I don't remember what, what they were. And, uh, the conversations weren't just about the action in his films, obviously, uh, for a great action podcast, go check out Action for Everyone. Um, but it, I really started thinking about, like, God, like, let me let me sit down and rewatch The Insider. This is, like, five years ago, maybe, now. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's when The Insider, like, really jumped out to me. It's like, oh, fuck, this is totally, like, this might be his best, like, directed movie, like, mm-hmm. all the way through. Uh, but then that changes every time I watch another Michael Mann movie. Yeah, so. it's one of those things where, like, whatever was the last Michael Mann film I watched is my favorite Michael Mann movie. Yeah, like, I stopped that, that updating keeps... my, my Michael Mann ranked list because I was like, it's Manhunter at the top, and then everything else kind of fits into second place. And then Public Enemies at the bottom, and then LA Takedown is in the back after I mm. shot it in the head. Yes. <laughs> uh, which, you know, no no ill will towards Michael Mann on that one. That's just a... You, you can't do a heat like that. In, in, here's, yeah. here's one thing I gotta throw out there, is uh, Michael Mann's Collateral might be the only movie that has worked for every single person I've recommended it to. Even Heat, really. Even Heat, he, well, Heat's like a three-hour movie. Like, there are some people that just are not going to do a three-hour movie, you know? Yeah, that's true, that's true. And But Collateral is a movie, it's like a solid two hours, and I just, I, if I'm ever, like, hanging out with someone and they want to watch a movie and, like, they're having trouble picking something, and I'm like, I don't want to sit here for an hour trying to pick a movie, mm-hmm. I will kind of force Collateral, because I know it'll work. And it does, every time. There's one person I, I you know what? You mentioned that. Like, I have also gotten very positive responses to Collateral whenever I recommend it. Uh, Kaylin, I don't know if you're listening to this. Old friend, uh, very close to, to them and their family. She could not sit through it for whatever reason. Really? Yeah, so I hate you. 
I'll bring back your Tupperware <laughs> next time you're in town. Um, but okay. yes, that the, the one person who could not, uh, who, who wasn't fully engaged with it. Friend of Diego, you might be the only person on the planet. Like, just based on my experience. Because I have shown movies to people where I'm like, There's this movie, everyone loves this movie. And, like, they just don't like it, you know? Yeah, and yeah. And I'm like, wow, but I've never had a miss with Collateral. That's pretty good. Fucking, yeah. I fucking, like, I, like, crashed and burned with recommending Manhunter. Yeah, like, no, um... I know Gene and Nick, friends and 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 co-hosts of podcasts, mm-hmm. uh, they. I I don't think they were super into it when they first saw it, but I know it stuck with them longer. Yeah, you know, it, it, here's the thing: it's not a movie night movie. You know. Yeah, that's I'm the like, problem. Like the friends I, I took to see the new Doctor Strange, which we'll talk about eventually, uh, another podcast. Uh, everyone enjoyed it to the degree that I was like, I'm going to fucking show all of you Evil Dead this summer. Like, I'm really excited to sit all of them down because we had a big group to go see that movie and do that. That's a great movie night movie. All three of them are great movie night movies. Michael Mann no, is actually, not that. <laughs> here's, in my experience, Evil Dead and Army of Darkness kind of have a hit and miss ratio with people. Yes. But Evil Dead 2 works with everyone. Evil Dead 2 is maybe the greatest thing the to ever happen to cinema. Yeah, but but also I was going to say that uh, Michael Mann is this weird, like he's got this weird reputation of like dudes rock bro cinema, right? Mm-hmm. And like his movies really don't work like that, you know? No, no. Like, like they're, they, they're very manly men and they're kind of like, I'm, I'm a man, I'm going to protect my woman. But he... And I think he doesn't get credit for... I would say his women are less well-written and less well-realized, but they still have, like, their own, like, agency and stuff like that. Like, even if it's a it's a role with, like, the, the grieving wife or widow or something like that, right? It's not uh-huh. just that. Like, you can feel that they have a life outside of what we're just watching on screen. I will say, I think the insider might be uh, the biggest train wreck in terms of female characters <laughs> in a Michael Mann movie. Um, I, 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 okay, I'm glad we agreed because I was like teeing I, all that up and be like, I was gonna be like, however, yeah, <laughs> it, it's this weird like, it's like Lowell Bergman's wife is like kind of like just like a silent like support, you know, like she'll chime in occasionally to be like, keep at it, honey, and then you got uh, Jeffrey Wigand's wife who just like abandons him, and. It's this weird thing of, like, she's framed as, like, in the wrong in that, but, like, it does kind of come across that Jeffrey Wigand is, like, kind of a fucked up dude. Uh, yeah, by he's all got accounts, an anger problem. He's, yeah. I mean, he, he is pushed against, like... Oh, my God. I just clicked on Jeffrey Wigand's uh, Wikipedia. Oh, no. And, no, no, there's a picture of him 2006. Okay. And I gotta say... He does kind of look like Heavy Set Crow does now. <laughs> really? Like, yeah. It's like I can kind of see it. All right. And it's like I'm like the only person on play- on the planet that looks like Russell Crow is Russell Crow. And it's like no, Wagan does definitely have some Russell Crow energy to him. I see it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's de- <laughs> there's definitely Heavy Crow in there. Like, yeah. um, that's kind of wild. Both uh, Jeffrey Wigand and um, Lowell Bergman were also like active in the production of this film. Yes. Well, no. Wigand was not because oh, no. his his non disclosure agreement prevented him from talking to anyone. He was oh. still under that agreement. I believe he was able to meet with Russell Crowe once, but they couldn't talk at all 
about the investigation. Ah, uh, gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, I think that was the big thing. Okay, like, Russell Crowe uh, only had this, that. You go ahead. I just said Russell Crowe, like, kind of, the only thing he had to work with for the longest time was the 60 Minutes interview. Okay. Like, well, why again is in a, a behind-the-scenes featurette on the on the DVD and Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. But I, okay, maybe it's maybe it's lifted. But whenever they were making it, he still couldn't talk about it. Yeah. So. Well, to to your point, and I I believe that makes sense. He doesn't like describe anything in the the legal proceedings. He's just yeah. talking about the experience. You know, mm-hmm. like it's that it makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So I think that's. But yeah, uh, Lil Bergman definitely was involved. Uh, Mike Wallace was not. <laughs> yeah. Who who you mentioned already hates this movie. <laughs> Oh, and like to talk about like, like the like this being maybe like the biggest disaster in terms of the female characters in this um, movie. There is that amazing scene where Christopher Plummer just goes in, all in on people for like editing his scene, mm-hmm. but then like he starts talking to what's her name, and he's like, "It's Mister Wallace," and it is a little demeaning. <laughs> like uh, is it, it is it, a is little Gina Gershon. I think. Right? I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think that's her, yeah. and it's like. Who is great in everything, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, Mike, Mike, it's Mr. Wallace. What does he say? That is a wild, that, that might be, you corporate lackey. Like, Mm -hmm. if anyone started yelling like that at me, even if it was, like, a script where I knew those lines were coming, I would start crying. Yeah, no, Christopher Plummer just had that energy, you know? Yeah. It's so weird. Christopher Plummer has like a weird like grandfather energy, but also that like mm-hmm. he has this these two sides to him. No, no, that's why he's fucking perfect for something like Inside Man, Spike Lee's Inside Man. Yes, where he's like, you know, we're we're here for whatever you need, officer. And it's like, oh, you you're you weren't being a protective grandfather. You yeah. were hiding your Nazi blood money. Yes. <laughs> Spoilers for the Inside Man, which yeah. is a terrific. Also, film. that's why it's like that wild thing of like him being uh, all the money in the world. You know? Oh where yeah. It was supposed to be uh, Kevin Spacey, and uh, not to give any benefit of the doubt to Kevin Spacey, but just going based on that trailer, he's got like a way different angle on John Paul Getty, right? Mm-hmm. Like where it's like you look at Kevin Spacey's John Paul Getty, and it's like this guy's a piece of shit from the get go, and Christopher Plummer's Getty is like a subtle piece of shit, like. Yeah. It's it's the performances are so different and so wild and Christopher Plummer is like ultimately the much better version you know mm-hmm. um, in my opinion I will never know of course <laughs> but wasn't Plummer like the first choice and the studio was like nah you got to go with Kevin Spacey he's big right now <laughs> and then... <laughs> wow I didn't yeah. Know. I think that's the story, which is why uh, Ridley Scott, when it was like, Ridley Scott, we got to do something about this. He's like, no problem. I'll get fucking Christopher Plummer. <laughs> what a, that's, that's kind of a failed awards contender. Oh, yeah, yeah. Failed uh, award contender and failed blockbuster in the same year. Yeah, failed. Basically, and just failed everything. No, no. <laughs> uh, not quality, but like, there's a lot of failure going on in that movie. Um, yeah yeah I'm looking at uh, Kevin Spacey's John Paul Getty and it looks like a cartoon <laughs> yeah no it's like the fake makeup and everything like that and the yeah. prosthetics which is a thing that the Academy likes for some reason yeah and it might be a combination of Mike Wallace didn't do that and the I mean that Christopher Plummer didn't wear makeup and that Mike <laughs> Wallace uh, 
went all in against this movie um, that for some insane reason Christopher Plummer isn't even nominated for this movie. Like, it's a it's a Best Picture nominee, not Best Director, Best Picture, and Best Actor for Crow, which makes sense. Crow is terrific in this, mm-hmm. um, but nothing for Plummer. That's insane. No, didn't didn't uh, Michael Mann get nominated Best Director? I thought he wasn't nominated. I no, no, no. Academy weird... Awards. Yeah, yeah. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor. Okay, I thought I thought it was one of those weird ones where they just gave it to Picture, but like. Because it was one of those movies that came out and like got good reviews, but then it it kind of was like what by the time it was nominated, everyone knew it wasn't going to win shit because it didn't win a single Academy Award. Yeah, which in hindsight, you know what, nineteen ninety nine was a fucking incredible year for movies. It was a stacked year, but it's also one of those years where uh, it feels like it feels like a lot of people that won shouldn't have won. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, who wins Iron best... Giant and The Matrix came out that year. Jesus Christ. No, yeah. aca- no Academy Award for Best Animated Film at the time. No. Uh, which is a shame. Yeah. Uh, which was basically put in so it could be the Pixar Award. And then Pixar doesn't win it like the first two times out. Fuck yeah. Because it's, uh, I think, sh- does Shrek win? <laughs> I think Shrek Shrek beat it. That's why Jeffrey Katzenberg was like, I'm fucking king of the world. Yeah, Shrek wins, and then Spirited Away wins the next year, which of course Spirited Away. Oh yeah, yeah, best um, movie ever. Uh, to to the the more award stuff, I want to shout out Dante Spinotti, who's worked with Michael Mann a bunch of times, and um, is an incredible cinematographer. Like maybe top five living cinematographers for me. Like mm-hmm. just legendary in every sense of the word. And for some reason, they hired him to do Ant Man and the Wasp at one point. Um, you can't tell he shot that movie. I don't that, believe it was actually. That happening. might be the worst thing you've ever said to me. Yeah, no, that was really <laughs> upsetting. That was back when I was trying to give that movie a softball, and then I was like, "Wait, what?" Although like I am looking at his uh, film, his like last few years, it's rough. Yeah, it's rough. It's rough. I don't know if, if it's just like he can't get work, or uh, I mean, the Public Enemies, which looks amazing. Um, I've really warmed up to the look of that film, and that's the thing. He's he's really willing to like experiment, and like in a yeah. in a public conversation for the twentieth anniversary or twentieth twenty yeah twentieth anniversary for Heat, and he was talking to Christopher Nolan, who was hosting the Academy Talk for it for the the four K print screening of it, and um, Nolan was asking about the film stuff as he does, and Dante Spinotti was like, "I want to mention that I think the film has never looked better. I think." <laughs> The capabilities of digital technology allow us to push the colors in a direction that you cannot get through the photochemical process. So he's a really big proponent of like pushing what's capable well, here's, of an image. You know, here's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, he, like Public Enemies to me is one of the best examples of what digital film can do, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like he can't adapt to digital, but then it's like after that, it's just garbage. Yeah. Like, for for people that don't want to open Wikipedia, let's let's get this out of the way. Public it's... Enemies 2009. Then Chronicles of Narnia 3. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the one that no one saw. And uh, that Disney had the rights initially, and then was after that, like, we're just not... Like, that was the one where Disney had, like, handed it to 20th Century Fox. Mm-hmm. Like, which now they own again, 
which is insane. Which so, I think is a really fun book, and I, that would be a fun one to adapt. The, the Narnia books are actually kind of fun. It's They tried to turn them into Lord of the Rings for some reason. Yeah. Uh, which, really quick, uh, let, me, let me just run down the list, because this is oh, like, yeah, shocking. Just... Tower Heist. Well, that's the other thing. He's Brett Ratner's guy, because he yeah. does Brett Ratner's... Red Dragon. Red Dragon. Because he shot Manhunter, and he was like, if I'm making Manhunter, I might as well just get the Manhunter guy. So he's been with he's been with <sighs> Brett Ratner since the Family Man. Yeah, I got I got man. concerns now. <laughs> yeah, uh, X Men: The Last Stand. Uh, fucking Tower Heist, that you were about to say, and that kind of interrupted. And the Hercules movie that no one remembers that there is a Dwayne Johnson Hercules movie. Yeah. Which do you remember the trailer for that? Was Brett Ratner in the trailer? No, what? There was. It used to play, and maybe it was like a Regal Cinema thing, but the only trailer I remember for that movie was Brett Ratner like talking to the camera, being like, I remember talking to Dwayne The Rock Johnson and him saying, I was born to play Hercules. And that was the trailer for that movie. <laughs> Anyways, I don't even know what the fuck... <sighs> fuck Brett Ratner. Um, yeah, you got stuff like I Saw the Light, which is like one of Tom Hiddleston's... Uh, dramatic roles. Like a his... forgotten Tom Hiddleston movie. Yeah, Tom Hiddleston's such a good fucking actor. And then, I like, know. Outside of the Marvel stuff, he just hasn't been able to find something to, like, carry him. I think they all seem as Loki, which is a real... Like, that's the thing. I watched that Loki show, and I wasn't, like, a giant fan of it, but it was one of those things where I was kind of like, man, they kind of wasted fucking... Um, they kind of wasted him, you know? Like, he's really good as Loki. And... In a weird way, it's like one of the better villains of the Marvel Universe. No, Loki's got a lot going on. Some some of the stuff gets a little inconsistent at some points, I still argue. But, like, that performance is so fucking good. In Avengers, too. Like, I think people kind of dismiss that one because he kind of, like, lost his marbles by that point. But he is really good in that movie. And oh, yeah. I, I'll cr- go to bat for him hard, yeah. I'll give him this. He's got a great run, like, in the 2010s. Like... He's in, he's F. Scott Fitzgerald and Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. Oh, yeah. Which, I, I uh, gotta wait till he's dead to rewatch that, but yeah. yeah same. A movie. Uh, a movie I liked when I saw it, but no, same, now, yeah, unfortunately, I'm not. Unfortunately. Um, he was in the Deep Blue Sea. Do you remember Deep Blue Sea? <laughs> um, not, the, not the shark yeah, I know, movie. I know. The, I other, like, the other one. <laughs> yeah. um, it's Rachel Weiss, right? She's in that? Yeah, yeah. Only Lovers I, Left Alive. He's oh, really good yeah. in that. And yeah. he's great in Crimson Peak. Yes, uh, yes. Which is a fantastic movie. Um, uh, to to the Michael Mann thing to tie back to that Tom Hiddleston has multiple times that his favorite film is Michael Mann's Heat and that it's everything he thinks a movie should have there you go so you know he's a man of taste someone fucking give him something yeah please fucking god oh he was on the night manager I never saw the night manager no that's one of those fake British shows that they make for awards no but it's a John le Carre adaptation oh like, okay oh uh, shit so it might be really good yeah, it's directed by the woman who did uh, fucking Bird Box, Bird Box. and I, other, oh. other things, so yeah. I don't know how that's affected it, but hey, um, I usually like Jean Macari adaptations, even when they're not the best. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's a weird one where like people just ignore that there's been like a bunch of those lately, like... The Little Drummer Girl, a fucking Park Chan-wook directed adaptation. I know, which I cannot find now. It was it was on like the Sundance Channel or something ridiculous like that. Um, let me look up if it. I, I'm actually gonna look it up so I can tell people to go watch it. 
if I can find it anywhere. Um, yeah, until quick. then, John Lacare this... Cinematic Universe? Hey, um, you know that you could do that. All right, I guess it's still on the Sundance channel. Um, Sundance Now. And it's on AMC Plus. But I don't know, there is a censored version of it. Like, because it was for television, but there was also an uncut version. Abby, if you're listening to this, I know you're not because you're sick of people talking about Michael Mann, but you seem to be able to get a hold of these things. Oh, wait, was Send... she one of the people that was tired of Michael Mann? Yeah, she she tweeted like a little while back. She was like, I want people to stop talking about Michael Mann. Oh, I'm I was... sorry. I, and I, I That was not a sub a subtweet podcast moment. That was, that was I, I literally saw like plenty of other people. I know Diego was saying to me before we recorded that it was directly aimed at Abby, but hey. <laughs> um... <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. But Abby, if you're listening, since now you're enemies with Diego, but my best friend, if you can get a hold of, like, a digital file of uh, the little drummer girl directed by Park Chan-wook, send it to me. <laughs> and I will keep it for myself and share with no one. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah. And then... Yeah, and then that uh, Dante's <laughs> he uh, did a bunch of other shit that no one saw. Yeah, but he did fuck. black and blue. Remember black and blue? Oh, he's teamed up with Dion Taylor. Like, that's that's so strange. That is strange. That is strange. Bunch of weird. Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. No, that's that's the that's the next week podcast. Um, How endearing was it that Sam Raimi in every interview called the movie Doctor Strange Two? <laughs> uh, he's just he's just the best. Did you see him doing like his little fucking uh, uh, Three Stooges bits when he was like walking on the stages and getting like applauded, and then oh, he'd no, be like, it... "Stop it, stop it, oh, okay," and then he'd like cheer himself with the, like the hand gestures, and yeah, 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 and then he was like. I think he went to, like, uh, uh, some theater in Hollywood, probably Chinese theater, and he got a standing ovation. He's like, oh, thank you, thank you. You know, um, uh, I, I take tips for this. Uh, it's a buck fifty. <laughs> just kidding. It's like a dollar twenty-five. And it's like, he he's just like, what a guy. You know, mm-hmm. what a filmmaker. Fucking a, give him all the spotlights. Give him, give him what, I just want. I just want footage to surface of him uh, <laughs> hitting... Benedict Cumberbatch with a stick on the set of yeah. <laughs> Multiverse of Madness. Uh, and then Benedict Cumberbatch is like, you have to keep throwing that at me, Sam. And he's like, you talking back to me? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want that footage. <laughs> Sam, I won't be spoken to in that manner. <laughs> that is kind of, the, that is the best. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's the problem with cinema. Sam Raimi left. Yeah. And Michael is. Mann doesn't get to make his psychotic... In industry films anymore. Won't someone throw these old white men a bone? <laughs> <laughs> Truly the most oppressed people in the world at the moment. Um, yeah, you know, again, at the end of the day, these old white guys, they had their time. Uh, I'm oh. glad Sam Raimi's back, and I'm glad Michael Mann made a fucking just library catalog of basically... Four to five star movies hey, on a bad day. Hey, Al Pacino day. is in this movie. <laughs> Al Pacino is is just fucking. I think people kind of forgot how good he was for for a period because mm-hmm. you know he had some stinkers. Um, but watching stuff like this and it's like, oh yeah, he is one of the best to ever do it. Mm-hmm. 
You know, though, he was also someone where, when he had a sinker, like, you could say, like, all right, he was at least trying something, you know? Like, whereas, I think the flip side is De Niro, where De Niro, it feels like he's like, I'm using this to buy more real estate, like... <laughs> Fuck him. Fuck yeah, basically. Sorry. <laughs> um, but Pacino, yeah, I don't know why he was so... I mean, that's also the thing where, like, Pacino kind of disappears in the 80s. We forget that, too. That, like, everyone's like, why did he get an Oscar for Scent of a Woman? It was like, because based on his work in the 80s, it looked like he was never going to get nominated again. <laughs> like, What, people don't like cruising? Hey. Do people like cruising now? I like cruising. It's it's a you know, fucking I, problematic fave, as you coined it, but it, it yeah. definitely, uh... It's very well directed. <laughs> That's what I'm going to leave it at. <laughs> um... But anyways, Al Pacino, he's like, you know, I can imagine Michael Mann being like, you know, you know, Al, I want you to to really try, you know, really experiment with your performance. I don't want you to be Lowell Bergman, but I want you to be Lowell Bergman. Do you think that, Al? Do you think you can give me a chance? And he's like, don't mind if I do. Rip Torn is also in this film. Fuck yeah, Rip Torn. Speaking of yelling men, there's a lot of guys like Rip Torn and like, cliff curtis who have like one scene in the movie yeah like uh and they're like and they're great like mm-hmm. fucking michael gambon who's like one of the C- tobacco ceos and he basically disappears from the movie Yeah, he has the one scene and uh michael Mann I, in multiple interviews i saw of him um some of those videos only have like 50 views too it's like you fucking people don't cherish what you have i also um, again but, not to go back to Ramy as well i've also been going through that with Ramy where like i'm looking up interviews with him and like they're like in the hundreds of views maybe yeah and it's and like, like you people need to stop taking this for granted i feel like yeah. did you ever hear about the sam Ramy bit where uh he had to like fucking basically yell at the producers of uh john woo's hard target Oh, yeah, yeah. he's like, this is a John Woo picture. You let John Woo make his picture. That's me. It's like, you people, you got a Sam Raimi picture. You pay attention to a Sam Raimi picture. But Um, wasn't that that weird thing where they wanted (laughs) Raimi to take over uh, Hard Target? Yeah, because first he was like kind of like basically ghost producing it. And then John Woo was like, he's a nice guy, but I don't know why he's here. And then he eventually was told that like... He was there to take over the movie if uh, the producers didn't like it. and the, But Sam Raimi never, like, that was never his goal, personally. Yeah. He was just there, and he was like, you fucking idiots. You hired yeah. John Woo. You let John Woo work. You let the we painter kind of, paint. We kind of undervalue that John Woo was, like, the one guy to come over from, like, you know, like, Hong Kong or, like, from, like, overseas guys who, like, came to make American movies who was able to retain his style in Hollywood for at least a few years, you know? Yeah, I was going to be like, how dare you forget Chewy Hawk, but he only <laughs> made, like, two Van Damme yeah. movies, so... But also, you can feel, like, Hollywood kind of, like, ripping their soul out a little bit, you know? Hey, no, yeah. Knock Off and, mm-hmm. uh, uh... Oh, what I guess, the, yeah, the yeah. I guess, you're, I guess you're right. But yeah. no, I get what you're saying, yeah. But, like, they, there's, like, a weird, like, clipping of their wings that seems to happen, like, Wu kind of retained his in a way that made people go like, I mean, people talked about Broken Arrow and Face Off like they were terrible movies for a long time. And you watch them now and you're like, these are fucking like modern masterpieces. Yeah. Uh, Double Team was the other film I was oh, yes, about, yes, by the way, yes. which rocks. Um, um, and yes, as I mentioned before, 
only my family was there day one on the Face Off train. <laughs> Mm. Um, I watched Face Off not knowing it was a movie what? about guys' faces coming off. Oh, you thought it was just like one of like a double team title. I thought they were fighting, yeah. No. I'm like, okay, Travolta Cage, they fight. And the moment I realized <laughs> it was about faces coming off, I laughed for a good five minutes <laughs> that the movie is called Face Off. And it's about faces coming off. And it's like, how do you not give that movie five stars? Yeah. Like, that's that's amazing. I'm Caster Troy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Amazing. Hey, I think Pacino and Crow could have done Face Off. Um, maybe, yeah. I don't want that version, but I'm just saying. Like, in the multiverse of madness, they probably could have done that. Here's the thing, Hollywood comes to you, and it's like... You can, you can have as much money as you want to remake Face Off. No. But you have to use Pacino and Crow now. I'd still do it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, but That's no, but like, I, I, I wouldn't. I think it's a fool's errand to touch Face Off. Just like I Is think it? it's a fool's errand to touch most Michael Mann movies. They're doing a Face Off sequel, right? Yeah. Uh, with Adam Wingard. Adam Wingard. Yeah. Um, not the choice I would have picked, and I'm not even, like, an anti-Adam Wingard guy. Yeah, um, um, he's a good action, surprisingly good action director, in my opinion. I don't think, that sort of maximalist energy, that kinetic energy that people like John Woo have, Mm -hmm. I just don't think this industry in America right now is really allowing that to flourish. It's it's not in America, and any time it starts to crop up, we kill it. Like, and it's I mean, not... that's why, like, sorry, like, that's why I think that the horror industry is really interesting right now. It's because, like, we're yeah. starting to see that kind of come back. Like, people lost their fucking minds on over Malignant last year, you know? Yeah, but at the same time, I know a lot of people saw Malignant, and we're talking about the movie like all those choices weren't intentional. Oh. And... Like, that's, I'll say this, this has been something that's really frustrating as I went through Sam Raimi, like, kind of revisiting it, and talking to people who maybe, like, have just watched some of his stuff, and it's a frustrating moment where people are like, yeah, I like the Spider-Man movies, yeah, I like Evil Dead, but then they talk about it, and they talk about it, like, the way you would talk about The Room, and not in a, like, they thought it was, like, as bad as The Room, but they're like... Yeah, isn't it stupid? It's stupid that XYZ happens, but I like it anyway. And it's like, no, they that was intentional. Like, it wasn't like Sam Raimi showed up one day and didn't know how to do a movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, he chose to do those things. He chose to have, like, you know, scene transitions like that. It's It's not an accident. And that's a weird thing that I think younger people don't understand they, there's a weird irony poison poisoning going on you know yeah and a weird like m- movies that are ridiculous are ridiculous by mistake no one is intentionally ridiculous and if they are intentionally ridiculous it's deadpool ridiculous which isn't really ridiculous it's just like that we're like yeah i know this is stupid you know and that's a weird I don't know how to deal with that. And that's why, like I said, if someone like John Woo comes over now and shows up with that stylization, people would just destroy it. And 
they would talk about it, and even if they liked it, they would be laughing at it more than laughing with it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, I think, Nicolas Cage, you can see that all in just Nicolas Cage's career with that movie of his that just came out, um, which I saw, and it wasn't awful. It was, like, a surprisingly sincere movie, but it's a it's a weird window into how other people view Nicolas Cage, you know? Mm-hmm. That, like, Nicolas Cage is still a joke for a lot of people. It's just that we're all kind of in on the joke, right? Yeah. That's that's the what people think. And um it's one of those like no Nicolas Cage is making these choices because he believes in them, you know? Mm-hmm. He he's trying to do something different that isn't conventional and just cuz it's not conventional doesn't mean it's a mistake. And yeah, it's a little I'm a little frustrated with how we talk about those things today. Um a weird a weird indifference to sincerity um, that I find annoying and frustrating. That has nothing to do with the insider. I know. I don't. Why, um, what is happening today? We're, we're uh, both like on the ball. It's just the ball's like rolling rapidly away from us. Now. I think there's just a lot on our minds. <laughs> I, I think so. Uh, let's, 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 let's fucking pump out some more about the insider. Um, um, how fucking good is. Debbie Mazar, and she never pops up and stuff ever. Yeah, Debbie Mazar's good. Um, where is she lately? Uh, I don't know. You never know these days. Yeah, you never. You know, it's been one of those things that, like, uh, um, ever since like the Me Too movement. Anytime I read anything where it's like, eh, she was considered difficult to work with. I'm like, what the fuck was going on there? Yeah. Like, now, like, anytime I read that someone was difficult, I'm like, there's more to that story. Yeah. And then sometimes it's like, oh, no, they were just difficult. Mm-hmm. But, like, other times it's like, wait a minute, man. Um, hey, we got a guy returning to uh, oh, the yeah. awards contender. Our boy Wings Hauser. Hell, yeah. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Legency. Yeah, no, remember, he, he's, he's Remember fucking... when Christopher Plummer as Mike Wallace says Mr. Regency makes out with his wife five no. times a night. That's why they call him Mr. Five. No, and then Bruce McGill tells her him to her. <laughs> tells him to wipe wipe his smirk. Wipe smirk off your face. Yeah. Oh, so uh, fucking great. Like again, like that is a scene. Like, yeah, Bruce McGill, we gotta talk fucking D Day from <laughs> fucking Animal House. Uh as the lawyer and I gotta say, like Wings Hauser, not not a guy known for his acting ability, frankly, mm-hmm. but does a great scene where he's like, Dr. Weigard, I am instructing you to answer the question in accordance with the terms of a contractual obligation. Like, that's a really good little monologue. Yeah, it, it's then, like intense. Yeah, it's intense. And then he just, he's like, you know, he gets that ball right to fucking um, Bruce McGill. And McGill's like being funny with it for a minute. Like, you got rights and lefts and ups and downs and middles. <laughs> like, he's all over the place. And then he's like ramping it up and he does that like, this is not North Carolina, North South Carolina, nor Kentucky. This is the sovereign state of Mississippi. And like I said, I got no fucking investment in Mississippi as a human being. <laughs> like anytime I read about Mississippi in the news these days, it's usually because they're passing some fucking horrible law. But in the moment, I'm like, yeah, goddamn right, this is Mississippi. <laughs> 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 
Oh, it's so it's so like oddly satisfying. <laughs> the sovereign state of Mississippi. Yeah, and to go back to an earlier point too, like the the struggle to like gain victory over like Brown and Williamson specifically is like it's really like invigorating and almost kind of inspiring. And then the film like and the truth of the situation is that like the victory is not like a concise like fuck yeah like we're gonna party on Coruscant now it's just like we we kind of won uh we won the battle but there lost you go the war. <laughs> yeah like, that's really what I mean it's it's over by the end of it like again it's like a movie that's like fuck yeah journalism for the first half like you know that whole thing it's like they're fighting this weird legal workaround to get Wygant ah, Jeffrey Wygand to go on the record and you're like, fuck yeah, play the system, man. Fucking fuck their rules, man. And then when 60 Minutes turns into the bad guy, it's like, wait a minute. Holy fuck, this is fucked up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which a is movie. a big part of why fucking clowns like Charlie Rose were like, you know, it is a little, it, it is a film, you know. And he's mm-hmm. trying to emphasize that. And it's like, no, no, we, we, we know. We all know. We all, why? We all get it. Why did Charlie Rose exist? Yeah, that's the thing. I've talked shit about him before, and I'm going to keep doing it again because he was a sex pest. But even beyond that, he just wasn't an, a good interviewer. No, he wasn't. Because, I mean, Charlie Rose is a guy I found because he was one of... He, I will say this. He got on the internet before a lot of other people did. Like, I, like in, like, the Google video days, if you went to Google video and typed in, like, interview director you could find a Charlie Rose interview online, yeah. you know? Or that and, great Paul Thomas Anderson one. You have Jeremy yeah. Blackman, Tom Cruise, Luis Guzman. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And it's just like, he just keeps going, and it's like, oh, there's no point to this. Okay, got it, got yeah. it. And it's, well, that's the thing. It's like, you go like, all right, yeah, I would love to hear the Coen brothers in an interview, and then it's fucking Charlie Rose, and it's like, this guy sucks. And, like, these questions suck. Mm-hmm. And, and he just, I... like, because Michael Mann is such a thought-provoking filmmaker. Like, even in his, like, interview conversations, like, he, uh, and he's very giving with his time. I'll never forget, there's a good interview, he, he or not a great interview, but, like, there's this kid who's clearly anxious and nervous about meeting one of his, like, cinematic mm-hmm. heroes. And so Michael Mann's like, eh, I kind of went along in the last question. You, you Do another one. It's fine. Ignore him. And he, he gives him the time. And then oh, wow. versus, like, Charlie Rose, who's, like... You know, tell me what the movie's about. And Michael Mann's explaining the logistics of, like, the real-life situation, how it's, like, a complicated story. And he's like, well, you, I, I asked you 12 minutes ago, but can you tell me what the film is about now? Because you're going off on And it's like, dude, what? Did you go to school? <laughs> did you did you, did you you get an education in any of this? Or are you just a fucking hack anyways? He's kind of like that guy who used to do the Hollywood roundtables. Yeah, who thankfully like, doesn't do them anymore. Yeah, he doesn't do them anymore, but be like, you know, like, fucking Quentin Tarantino would give, like, some really, like, specific answer, and then he'd be like, and what do you think about that Ang Lee? Yeah. And, like, throw Ang Lee, and Ang Lee's, like, clearly, like, I don't know, like, because mm-hmm. he's Ang Lee, like. Oh, my God. Yeah, Those some, are some of these hard... people are fucking just stupid. I, I will say, I'm dunking all these people, I, I am freely admit I would be a terrible interviewer, so, but I've also stayed away from pursuing any career like that. Yeah. But, yeah. But also, Charlie Rose was a sex pest, so double fuck yeah. him. 
I guess he made his first appearance in like years recently. Really? Said in April 2022, Rose made his first public appearance since 2017, hosting an interview with Warren Buffett. <laughs> That's upsetting. What happens when Warren Buffett dies? Well, then the dollar uh, drops. That would be kind of wild if a guy died and that happened. Yeah, well, maybe maybe I'm I'm predicting the future in this podcast. And as it leads to a run on the market. Yeah. Edward George Ruddy died today. That's from Network. You ever seen that work? Yes, it's great. <laughs> so what's uh, that got to do with the price of tea in China? Speaking of Sidney Lumet, <laughs> Michael Mann uh, noted that I was a big like inspiration in his approach to this film, and I think you can kind of feel it. At yeah. least in terms of like his blocking of the actors, it feels more. Uh, there is also not like stage play, but like you get what I'm saying, right? There's there's a more there is a focus a, on that on the people within the spaces. There is also a certain desperation that is in Network that is captured here a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of ramps... Michael Mann ramps it up slowly, whereas, like, Lamette, it's, like, desperation from the get-go, and it gets worse. Yeah. Oh, but I I just... Immediately, my brain thought of, like, that moment when Al Pacino's on the phone on vacation. And, oh, yeah, and that's... He's, yeah. he's in the and ocean, he's like, I the, was oh, fighting yeah. for you! I still fight for you! And he's just, like, in the middle of this fucking hurricane. Yeah. It's <laughs> just, like... That was a real fucking hurricane. Why'd you make him film it during that? <laughs> that which might be the that that means Michael Mann is filmed in the middle of two hurricanes. Yeah, no, I don't know why he does. I think he does that because like not hurricanes specifically, but like the time of the year in that region of the world. Because like the clouds get make it very moody and atmospheric, and it's like, yeah, that's great, dude. Yeah, that makes uh, it hurricanes it. are real dangers. Yeah, <laughs> um, like maybe don't do that for ferrari <laughs> i don't know if there's anything what could we give you a good frame of reference to explain how terrible a hurricane could be i mean no one can picture just how bad a hurricane is it's not like hurricane is used to describe something <laughs> um this is a great film i frankly don't know how much more we can go on it yeah we've been hopping around a, a lot already that's the problem with us doing Michael Mann is that like everyone's already said everything you need to hear. Like so we're just gonna talk about whatever we want to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Marie Brenner for her Vanity Fair article, The Man Who Knew Too Much, which I mentioned before, because uh, you know, that's like a legitimate piece of journalism and kind of broke open like the tobacco industry and of course gave us this great film. So Suck my dick, tobacco industry. Yeah, that's the lesson to take away. Yeah, and... The only people that did something wrong. Yeah, and that capitalism is the thing worth rebelling against. It's kind of weird that tobacco is still so powerful. Yeah, that, like, we all know now. Like, that no one's, also, like, lied to. <laughs> it's also, like, tobacco is, like, one of the first industries in America, too. Like... There's probably like a that, metaphor in there somewhere. It's like that and gunpowder. <laughs> yeah, see, like, you don't even need to, like, draw huge thematic swings to that. Like, it's all there. Yeah. No, like, like, everything about America is, like, a parody of itself. Yeah. Like, America is a satire of what's wrong in the world. Exactly. Like, it's... 
it is kind of why the Michael Mann aesthetic has become so popular because it's like he's just America's id in a lot of ways. Well, it's Michael <laughs> like, Mann and Michael Bay. Oh, Michael Bay is what I said. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, Michael Michael Mann is the hard hitting truth. Michael Bay is the repugnant truth. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's I guess that's what I want to get at. Yeah. Uh, Michael Michael Bay made his Michael Mann movie with thirteen hours. Um. Okay. I never watched it. It's one of the best looking movies ever made. I fully believe okay. that. Ethan liked uh, it. Um. Yeah. I'm not. I just. I'm not the. I can't do the Michael Mann thing like everyone else. Michael Bay. Um. Like uh, whatever. Yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> uh. Like I. I. I don't know. I'm just. It's. I get what people are saying. I hear what people are saying. <laughs> Intellectually, I understand what you're what they're saying, but it is in no way made watching his movies more enjoyable. Um. So. I have not seen Ambulance yet, though. You um, might like that one. I might, but I'm I'm not rushing to see it. Uh, did it bomb though? Because then it could be a failed blockbuster. It did bomb. Made fifty million on a forty million budget. I guess that's a bomb. Yeah, it it um, wasn't successful. Yeah, so maybe we can work that one in. It would be interesting to talk about because we we already did the island. So it's like the only time we talk about Michael Bay is when we talk about his bombs. Um, yeah, maybe. We'll, we'll see. Oh, why did we not do Pearl Harbor? Uh, that is, is like is a, that a, a down the middle of failed awards contender? Like that is a hundred percent what that movie is. Yeah, yeah. That is his like one attempt to do an Oscar movie. What's that one quote he said about, like, making Pearl Harbor? He's like, at first I wanted to make something that was like everyone else, and then I was like, fuck that or something like that. And he was like, like, he had some quote about how he was like, he was trying to make a serious film. And then he was like, I'm going to make a fucking Michael Bay movie. And it's like, that's fine to feel that way. I don't know if Pearl Harbor's the one you do it with. Yeah, that's a, it's a weird movie. It's a very weird. very weird movie it feels like a movie about pearl harbor released in the year 2001 feels like it should be one of the most important movies ever made mm-hmm. was <laughs> and, it released uh, after 9-11 no before before <sighs> would have been wild if it was after yeah but it could have gotten like that second wind from like awards nominations and it didn't oh yeah no that would have uh, been hysterical you know yeah um but it's also a movie not really about Pearl Harbor. It's about the Doolittle Raid. Mm-hmm. Like, Pearl Harbor happens, and then, like, an hour of the movie is left. Yeah. It's, uh... You know who's good in that movie? Dan Aykroyd. Really? Yeah, Dan Aykroyd's great mm. in Pearl Harbor. He's got, like, three scenes. But it's just him being, like... All the all the naval officials are like, I think if we're gonna get attacked, it'll be California. And he's like... Sir, I think it'll be Pearl Harbor. <laughs> and, like, he lists all of, like, the important things about Pearl Harbor in a Dan, you know, Dan Aykroyd's way of listing information. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, you're fucking on the money, Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> <laughs> it is that funny thing of, like, they, they somehow turned the movie Pearl Harbor into one of those, like, they didn't listen to the one man who knew type movies. Yeah. 
which well, is that, also that was Michael Bay's thing for a little bit too. It was Michael Bay's thing. It was also um, it still is Roland Emmerich's thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, which is kind of crazy that Roland Emmerich is still doing that. Yeah, and we did talk about it before, but he did say that like he he won't be doing the crazy conspiracy theorist anymore. He won't do conspiracy theorists anymore, but he probably is still going to do the one man who saw it coming. Oh yeah, yeah. If we do not beat global warming um, and we all die, it's Roland Emmerich's fault. <laughs> I, I think the day after tomorrow did more damage to discussions of global warming than any other film ever made. <laughs> we, I don't know. I don't know about that. There's just such, like historically, there's been such a pushback against accurate science reporting about global warming climate change for like over 50 years at this point so that's all of that just all of that is very important the day after tomorrow did the most damage because more people saw that than anything else (laughs) that movie made 500 million dollars and it's about it's a movie where people literally run down a hallway trying to get away from climate change Yeah, that wasn't great. I think a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, Art Bell and Whitley Stryber also wrote a book that it is kind of based on. Well, The Insider was a movie about a real conspiracy and thriller um, situation. Yeah, uh, are you trying to say global warming isn't real? <laughs> no, whoa, no, no, no. I, I mean, just like Diego Roland said Emmerich. it. Diego Roland said it. Emmerich Diego said films. it. Roland Diego Emmerich said it. Films are not reality. You said it. I didn't say it. No, 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 no. That's not. I think people understand that's not where I come from with this. I was wondering why this episode was sponsored by Exxon Mobil. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just quickly pull out my stocks from Shell. <laughs> Let me cash all. Oh, I just knocked over a whole stack of checks that were sitting next to me <laughs> to keep the global leftist conspiracy going. Oh my god. You know, the global leftist conspiracy, which has been having a lot of wins lately. A lot of wins for the left lately. That's how you know it's a conspiracy. They just keep winning against all odds. Anyways, Matt, would you recommend The Insider? Absolutely. Nothing yeah. better to take your mind off of things today. Yeah. It, it's the fucking best. It, it might be the best movie we've talked about in the failed award contenders. And I'm not just saying yeah. that because I adore Michael Mann. Like, it straight up might be the best. It's like this. And thankfully, we barely talked about it. So if you were on the fence somehow <laughs> for this whole episode, you, you now you can like be pleasantly surprised by everything that happens in it. Well, let's see. What, what were the best ones we talked about? It's the Insider, Michael Clayton, Cloud Atlas, Kingdom of Heaven. A Speed Racer. Um, failed award contenders? Oh, I, I was. It should have been an award contender. It, it fucking should have been. Uh, I JFK, combined. Yes, but I, I, I hesitate to recommend that one. Um, and of course, tough guys don't dance. Have yes. yourself a, a, a nice little Wings Hauser double feature. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> you, know you know what my favorite scene in, in this movie was um, when you're in the courtroom and the cameras on Wings Hauser, and then they slowly pan over to the outline of a machete on the courtroom wall. (laughs) Oh, so fucking funny. 
Anyways, um, Matt, thanks for joining me on this episode of The Insider and also lots of other stuff that were on our mind. Norman Mailer is in Michael Mann's Ali. That's not true. A guy playing Norman Mailer, okay. I should Because he was at uh, the Ali Foreman fight. Ali. Stinks. <laughs> no, he was a big Ali fan. Okay. I'm sorry, Honestly, like I said, this has nothing to do... We're now, like, totally off book. But if you watch uh, When We Were Kings, like, you'll get why Norman Mailer was popular when you hear him kind of talking poetically about uh, Ali and Foreman. Mm. And... Like, he's talking, he's like, everyone thought Ali was going to lose, and he's talking about, like, how, like, there's, he's like, there's a stink of death in Ali's room as he waits to go out to fight. And, like, he's doing a lot of that. Mm. <laughs> but he's, like, he's really, he's really good at talking about those things. And it's like, wow, okay, I kind of get his appeal now. But now that I know everything else, <laughs> kind of hurts that appeal. <laughs> <laughs> Why, what was he up to? Uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, Matt, where can the people find you? I'm at EmperorOTN1 at Twitter.com. <laughs> and you can find me at the Diego Crespel. Check out the Waffle Press on Twitter, YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and Patreon, where you will eventually be able to get early access to, to other retrospectives we do. Um, failed Blockbusters up next. Uh, uh, oh, oh, and also that aforementioned Scream 5, a.k.a. 5 Cream, uh, Eternals, <laughs> No Way Home, Doctor Strange, the recap retrospective. Five uh, Cream sounds like a very different film. Yeah, who, who knows? Maybe <laughs> maybe all the characters Five Cream together. That's the worst thing you've ever said on this podcast. <laughs> I don't I don't know anymore. Um, I'm interested in seeing what I think about it because. People seem more mixed on it than ever. So I'm interested in seeing what I think about it. Yeah. That's the that's this that's this whole podcast in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> we we've been professional and professional. Get the fuck out of here. Get, go away. Yeah. We bye. don't we don't need you. Get the fuck out. He's only the key witness in the biggest public health reform issue in US history. Does he go on television and tell the truth? Yes. Is it newsworthy? Yes. Are we going to air it? Of course not. Why? Because he's not telling the truth. No, because he is telling the truth. And the more truth he tells, the worse it gets. You manipulated me into this. I fought for you, and I still fight for you. The American public need to know. Jeffrey! And you wish you hadn't come forward? Dr. Wagon's deposition will be part of this record. You wish you hadn't blown the whistle? Jeffrey! Do I think it's worth it? I told the truth. It's valid and true and provable. These people, that's not the point whether you told the truth or not.